0: Warning, this podcast episode contains explicit content, including swearing, discussion of sexual violence and rape, and other adult content. Welcome to Crow Club,
1: a Shadow and Bone and Grishaverse podcast. In this podcast, we'll be covering all of the Grishaverse, and it will be full of spoilers. No, really, we're going to have lots of spoilers. We'll be discussing the original Shadow and Bone trilogy, the Six of Crows duology, the King of Scars duology, season one of the Shadow and Bone Netflix show, and even Demon in the Woods, The Tailor, and the Language of Thorns. We'll be covering a character, topic, arc, or wild conspiracy theory in each show. So bust out your tinfoil hats and join us.
2: We're a group of three friends who have spent years reading the books in the Grishaverse and discussing them together. Our group chat passed 5,000 messages in the month after the book Rural Wolves and the Shadow and Bone Netflix adaptation came out, so we figured we should get some live talking in and we'd love for you to join us for the ride. My name is Anjali.
1: I'm Kat. And I'm JJ. And today we're going to be talking about The Darkling. Again. (laughs)
0: So we're back to discussing one of our favorite characters, the Darkling.
1: So we previously in Darkling part one have covered him in the Shadow and Bone trilogy and in the Netflix Shadow and Bone show. He reappears in King of Scars and Rule of Wolves. And so we'll be covering that here. In King of Scars and Rule of Wolves, we see the first hint that he is still around when he seems to take over Nikolai's demon and speak to Zoya. He is then more fully resurrected by the Obisbaya performed on Nikolai to rid him of the demon. We learn that Sancta Elisaveta saved his body and that his continued existence is related to this blight of miniature folds that are called vampires that keep popping up all over. He overtakes Yuri's body does not have his powers until he meets up with Alina and Mal and somehow gets his powers back with their blood, which we'll discuss later. He wanders around as Yuri, trying to get the followers of the Starless Saint, his worshippers, to engage in battle on his behalf. He seems to have some plans that we will discuss and speculate about what exactly they are. And... After failing to make his grand re-entrance to society a success, he gets <laughs> locked up in a tree and tortured forever. So our name fun fact for this episode, we're going to go with Yuri, which is a Russian name, which also has Hebrew origins, meaning light of God, which I love as the follower of the starless saint.
0: It kind of makes it feel Almost. like Lee Bardugo was like planting an Easter egg about how Yuri was mistaken about who he was supposed to be following.
1: Mm. That's I what I thought that. when I
0: heard you say that, of like, he's the exact opposite of light. That's beautiful.
1: And our quote is the first thing Nikolai says to Zoya after they go visit the Darkling in his prison for the first time. He's fun, said Nikolai, pouring a glass of brandy. I forgot how fun he is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, one interesting thing I noticed in Rule of Wolves is that we actually see a random mention of the Darkling using the name Kirigan. And it definitely made me feel like Lee Bardugo was kind of trying to set that up for the show. And we'd never seen that name mentioned before or elsewhere. Yes, yeah. It is a little bit confusing with also Count Kerrigan,
1: which is I guess like one letter different.
0: I'm not exactly sure why they went with that one. So should we talk about what we learned about the Darkling from the second duology?
1: Yeah, we get to learn a bunch of things partially because we get his point of view. And so we get to hear about some things that have happened in the past from his perspective.
0: And it's actually the first time since The Demon in the Woods that we get this.
1: Yeah. There are a lot of things we learned. I will say the one that made me most excited is this quote. For the first time in several hundred years, he wished for whiskey. (laughs) Because I have always cannoned that he's been just like over these little human wants and needs for centuries. And so it was kind of nice to see, oh, at least whiskey. Yeah. Maybe there's a separate story with the whiskey, but I I read that as more alcohol.
0: (laughs) I also remembered seeing that he was alive before the Grand Palace was built. I don't think we have enough of an idea of the timeline of when it was built, but that did make me think, okay, maybe he's even older than like 400 years.
2: Yeah. And one thing I think we learn also is that the saints knew the Darkling or they had met him. He's a contemporary of them. So I think that shows not only his age, but I think it opens up kind of an interesting perspective of he probably has the knowledge that Elisabetha and Juris talk about. And he also has probably seen his contemporaries become saints, and he chose not to emulate them for whatever reason.
1: And related to those saints and them knowing each other in his age. So we know that Elizaveta was around before Ravka was a country. She also says that she met the Darkling in her youth. Mm -hmm. And of course, when she's lived that long, youth is a very relative term. I think we know Ravka was a country when the Darkling was a child in Demon in the Woods. But it does suggest that he is potentially
0: much, much older than these 400 Mm -hmm. years. I mean, also maybe kind of obvious, but we learned that he didn't actually fully Mm -hmm. die in the hold (laughs) at the end of Rune Rising. (laughs) And relatedly, it seems like Barbara might not be dead either. Although he does... Tell Misha something about how my mother was also murdered by my monsters in the end. Probably just another Darkling lie because, in another conversation with Zoya, they talk about the Dark Mother.
1: He also uses the word immortal to describe himself.
0: Yeah.
1: In our previous discussion of the Darkling and Bagra, we mentioned they specifically did not use that word and it was
0: notable in its omission,
1: but here he says,
0: I am immortal. In Zoya's memories, we see that he used his classic line of, we're going to change the world together on her too. and You and I are going to change the world. Yes. And I was like, this guy is such a fuckboy to use modern terms for it because he's just going around using these same kind of tired lines. I mean,
2: he's got one line, but it's such a great line. (laughs) Does it do it for you? (laughs) It's pretty convincing.
0: In this book, he
1: then uses it on brother... Check on oh. I don't remember his name, but on one of the members of the Starless Saints, he said the the guy said, "I'm sorry for doubting you," and he said, "No need to apologize. You and I are going to change the world." Oh, yeah, that's interesting. So we also learn that the Darkling at least believes that Bagra has other children. He spends time looking for them. We do not find out if he finds them or if they in fact exist, other than Ula, which is confirmed. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things where we see the Darkling really making a move is he's like, oh yeah, I'll tell you this information you want, but first I want to see Alina Starkov And Zoya and Nikolai acquiesce, and he meets up with Alina, who brings Mal, and also... For some reason, Misha and also Oncat, <laughs> just so we know, Oncat's the squad still alive and well.
2: Oncat might, may have been fan service, and I am grateful for it.
1: Yeah, I'm a big Oncat fan. <laughs> At least Oncat did not seem re-traumatized by the meeting, unlike Misha, mm-hmm. who should not have been there. But so in that scene, he has a little bit of the thornwood that he squirreled away, and he stabs it through Mal and Alina's hands gets their blood on the Thornwood, and in that way gets his power back.
2: The scene is, I mean, it's kind of a very dramatic moment when he stabs Mal because you initially don't know why he wants to see Alina and you're kind of waiting to see, okay, like what's he gonna do? Is he still in love with Alina? Is he mad at her? Does he just want closure? Does he want to apologize? And it turns out he wants to do none of those things. He wants to get his power back and he knows apparently he has to do it with Alina and apparently Mal comes attached to her. And I think that's really interesting because it is not explained why Mal's blood brings his power back. But I do think the implications there where he says, oh, I hear we're related. I think he implies that Oh, the reason, like, I didn't see my downfall. And the reason was because you are a relation of me. Like, that his blood has some power over him. And, like, he, that's how he was blindsided, essentially. But he can use the same blood to get his power back. I'm not saying it's explained very well, but I do think it is very interesting.
1: Before this, when he doesn't have his powers back, Nikolai says to him... Yuri Vedenin is still there, somewhere inside you. Is that why your powers haven't returned? The Darkling watched the king with narrowed eyes. Such a clever fellow. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know the Darkling lies just constantly. Mm -hmm. So I, I wouldn't take that as for sure truth, but I thought it was interesting. That was kind of the explanation that was set up, but it doesn't seem like what he really did got rid of Yuri.
0: So can I ask a basic question? Because maybe this will help me think about it. The Darkling is back in Yuri's body, right? The body that Elizaveta had found and saved and stored for a while of his previous body, that just like got discarded, right? I think, like, Zoya destroyed Okay, it. okay. So it's just completely, physically Yuri. Gotcha.
2: So when I read that and I thought about that line, that, that interaction that Nikolai and the Darkling have, I don't necessarily interpret it as a confirmation from Lee of why the Darkling isn't getting his power back. I think Nikolai is, like, putting that theory out there. And I think the Darkling is like, oh, you're right, you caught me, but he's lying. Because if Nikolai knew the real way for the Darkling to get his power back, he would never let him meet Alina.
0: But it was the combination of meeting Alina and Mal, right? Like he couldn't have done it with just one of their blood. So I feel like that was an error on everyone else's part to have both of them be there in the room with him at the same time.
1: Yeah, why did he need Alina at all?
2: I think maybe he knew that Mal would never let Alina meet him alone, and so if he wanted to get to Mal, again, this is like a CAS-level maneuver, right? Make them think you're stealing their like wallet when you want their pocket watch. Like Make everyone worried about Alina because he wants to yeah. meet Alina, but he's actually out to get Mal, who will come to protect her.
0: But he stabbed Alina, too. Both of their hands were bleeding. That's what you get for holding hands? Sure.
2: Maybe he wanted the wallet and the pocket oh. watch. <laughs>
1: I like that also by asking for Lena, he avoided ever
0: having to say Mal's name. Right, he like never says his name. He goes out of his way to never say his name. So the reason why I was asking about the Yuri body thing is, and this is kind of like morbid and overly literal, but maybe he actually needed some of his own bloodline and Yuri's physical body did not provide that. Ooh. Like otherwise I don't really understand why it would have to be Mal because if it was just like his own power or something, Like, Nikolai's been there all along and has his demon, his, like, residual power inside of him, too. So it seems something specific to blood of his, like, relatives or bloodline.
1: Mm, So it's less about the fact that Mal killed him and more about the fact that he knows he's related. Right. That's really interesting. Though my question around this relation thing is that he's really old. Like, he's got to be related to a (laughs) lot of people at this point. I guess Mal was maybe just the, rather than going around stabbing lots of people and just trying to hope that one of them is related, Mal's the one he knows is
2: related. I think it's about who he has access to, right? He doesn't have access to a bunch of random people he can stab, but he can get access to Mal.
0: I guess two questions. One, is it specific not to Bagra's line, but to Swanbreaker's line? Because if so, then Mal is really the only known one. Otherwise, he could stab Ula if he just needed anyone from the Mordzova line. He knows where she is. He can find her probably again.
2: I would say that's putting the cart before the horse a little bit, right? He can't just escape to find Ula. He needs his power back to escape. And to get his power back, he needs to find a certain bloodline, right? And he can request Alina slash Mal. He probably would have a harder time requesting a sea witch on the coast of Fjorda.
0: The other thing I was wondering is, if he staged this whole thing in part and stabbed both of them, whether or not he needed both of them, it's unclear, is because it was his way of somewhat punishing them. Like We see the Darkling always punishes people who he deems to have betrayed him, and for him to not have done this to the two people who killed him would be so out of character so i think for me it was this scene was about him punishing them by making them believe that they're the reason that he was able to come back into his full power even if alina's blood wasn't actually necessary because i don't understand why it would be
2: that would be truly i like manipulative and devious and i love it
0: yeah that's great especially like if he already had
1: his power right right Right. that would be so messed up just like give me a
0: chance to stab them like they stabbed me and now (laughs) right and then pretend like that's the reason i'm back to my full power okay and jj i also wanted to give you a chance to talk about that scene because you said some things in our chat that just completely cracked me up she basically did a what's a tear down is that the word is that a real word? <laughs> a breakdown?
1: Look, I don't think the scene made a lot of sense. I mean, I'm not even going to kind of get into Alina saying she's happy and the Darkling had never seen her happy, which is just not true. <laughs> we know in the first book she was happy in the little palace for yeah. quite a while. And that made Mal really upset. But You know, some of it was so weird. I really, the fact that Misha was there, Alina talks in that scene about how she likes healing orphans and watching them become whole again. And then she brings Misha to see the Darkling. She even tells him that the Darkling has come back and then brings him and lets this 11-year-old kid stand there and threaten the Darkling and then, like, watch
0: him escape. Do you think it was some, like, misguided form of therapy for Misha where she wanted him to confront his fears. I mean, I hope so. It it does
1: make me doubt Elena's natural (laughs) skill at running an orphanage for traumatized children. There was also a funny part just where the Darkling says to Mal, I hear we're related. And Mal says, we all have relatives we don't like. And the Darkling then says, do you, orphan? And I was like, how weird. Mal is literally sitting right next to Alina, who has no relatives she doesn't like. She has one (laughs) relative, which is Mal. I mean, (laughs) I guess maybe it says more about their marriage. But like, it, it just struck me as strange in that the Darkling also has, as far as they know, one relative, his mom, and now mal it was a very strange group to make that comment around i
2: think it's also it is definitely strange here the darkling is clearly doing it to be hurtful too but you know this is a a man in his his 20s (laughs) and I, i don't know you're apparently trying to hurt him by calling him an orphan it just doesn't seem very relevant and the darkling perhaps believes that he's lost his mother too to be careful slinging about terms like that doesn't even know his father. Pretty rough.
0: One thing that I've mentioned before is that the Darkling never uses Mal's name. And it already, we talked about it earlier in this episode too. I think it's his way of kind of trying to in, not so subtly insult Mal. Like, again, hinting at the fact that he's so insignificant. His life is so short and meaningless that, like, learning his name is pointless to him. And he can no longer call him the tracker because he can't track anymore or at least tracked to the same extent so orphan is like maybe one of the only terms he can come up with to avoid using his name
1: (laughs) yeah i mean to me i i know mal says like you say it like it's a bad thing but when i read it it just seemed like he was making the point he's like you're an orphan. Do you actually have <laughs> like do you actually have relatives you don't like? I, I didn't read it as like this it's not italicized in a way where I might have read it as like, do you orphan? Right. I think in my predictions before the first book of this duology came out, one of the things I had a list of like things I said I was I wanted and things I was hoping for. And one of the things that I hoped was that Alina would not be in this series. I think her story's over, and if she wanted a peaceful life, I I didn't love that ending, but if that was really what she wanted, give it to her. So I thought it was a little bit too bad that it got disrupted here.
2: The little nod in King of Scars (laughs) that they give to Mal and Alina, I thought was like very sweet, but it kind of signaled like, hey, we're not going to bring them into this duology, but here's your reference that they're there, and here's a little wink to that. I thought it was maybe kind of unnecessary bringing them in this series i don't know if it was fan service i don't know if there is some aspect of the magical mythology world building logic that required mal and alina's blood for the darkling to get their powers. so it they had to have a scene with alina i'm happy to see alina just because i enjoy her as a character i'm happy to see her happy too that's important to me but as a reader, I didn't get much beyond that. I don't think they necessarily contributed to the fabric of the universe or this book's progression in some way.
0: I mean, I'm thankful for the scene because of the comedy I got in JJ's Teardown of it.
1: <laughs> I got riled up rereading, that's for sure. So one of the things that's interesting in Rule of Wolves specifically is that we do get the Darkling's point of view, but we also get a lot of people talking about the Darkling. And I thought it'd be interesting to kind of go through the different people and what they say and how it seems to mesh with what we saw in Book 1 or what we see from him here. So
0: maybe we can start with Zoya. So her feelings towards him in this duology seem really complex, and this is the first time we actually get to see her reckoning with her past uh, and her previous adoration of the Darkling. And... Clearly, as she's reflecting back throughout, especially, I think, Rule of Wolves, she feels really bad about it. And I think there's a strong sense of shame and guilt that turns into some sort of fear towards the Darkling who's back now. And he actually recognizes that. He calls her out and he says, like, oh, your general's afraid of me, to Nikolai, in front of her face, which I'm sure she loves. And... I thought it was just really interesting how scared she is of him, and it seemed to me it wasn't so much of as of him as a character, but
1: Yeah, it's going along with what you said, she really fears becoming that girl that she was again. She fears that he will be able to manipulate her.
0: I think she's also afraid of becoming him. Like once she has Juris and the dragon's power, she has nightmares that she turns into him, especially after they seal him in the tree. And I think it's all tied into this complex feeling she has, where once she realized how terrible of a person he was, when she realizes that she's basically immortal and has the potential to become as powerful as he was at his peak, that really scares her. She should be afraid.
1: We'll talk about it more in the Zoya episode. <laughs> so now that Zoya is a dragon, and thus, as we see, omniscient, like she can tell what's going on in the fold from the thorn tree at the end of Rule of Wolves. She can just, like, open her dragon eye and see everything. But she describes the Darkling in this quote, his presence on the battlefield had been like a gap in all that life and fear, a deep well of eternity. When she's going through the dragon eye and perceiving people's emotions, she's seeing that he's just kind of, like, empty Mm -hmm. relative to everyone else.
2: I mean, I think that tracks when we see the Darkling's point of view chapters, they're very different than I would have expected them to be. They're so weary, so tired, fewer emotions than I necessarily would have expected from the Darkling.
1: So there are a couple things that we see kind of discussed amongst the Grisha or repeated a lot in this book about him. One of them that I thought was really interesting was that he ripped Grisha away from their parents to join the second army. I, I believe it's Genya who says he took us from our families when we were so young. It's taken as this bad thing, and what that really brought up for me <laughs> is that for none of the point of view, Grisha is this actually a thing? Like we don't actually see any of them being ripped from their families. Zoya was saved from a terrible situation. Alina was already in the military. Nina was in an orphanage. We don't see this ripping away. And given what we see with some of the other Grisha, like Alexander and Bagra and Jesper and his mom, we would actually expect that most of the Grisha in the Second Army would have been born to Grisha in the Second Army but we actually don't see that as a structure. And I just wasn't sure what to make of it. They started talking about these things that he did, That then I was like, did he exactly do that? Or how
0: did that work? So interestingly, in one of his perspective chapters, he actually talks about how, I have the quote, he knew the secret ways and hiding places of Grisha and wherever he went, he promised them a new life lived without fear. They hadn't wanted to come with him to the capital at first, They'd been sure it was some kind of trick, and that once they were within the city's double walls, they would be killed. But a few were willing to make the journey with him, and they had become the soldiers of the Second Army. And obviously it's a darkling perspective chapter, and he's the biggest liar we know. It also could have been from just the beginning of when he was forming the Second Army. But it does make me think we really never see evidence of any Grisha being ripped from their families, whether from any of the modern Grisha or from at least his perspective of starting the Second Army.
1: Yeah, the only time we see that happen really is in Fjorda and Shuhan. And yeah. that was actually, I, I made a note of this in terms of like Grisha frequency, like how common are Grisha? There's a quote here about people in Fierda saying, most of them knew someone who had vanished Mm -hmm. a friend a neighbor even a relative a woman willing to leave livelihood and family behind for fear of having her power discovered a boy snatched from his home in the night to face torture and death at the hands of brum's witch hunters and i thought that was interesting in that it it makes it seem relatively frequent if almost everyone knows someone but also makes it seem less familial well
0: Devil's advocate, if these are if we're talking about small towns in Fierta, maybe everyone knows the same person and someone's sister is also the neighbor or it's the same person.
1: Yeah, but I guess if there's even one in a, like every ten to twenty years in a town that appears randomly, like it doesn't seem to be like part of a family, that's like a decent random Grisha frequency. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things are are coming up here. One is that You think with all the Grisha that are in the second army, they would be procreating and that a lot of them would be joining the Grisha army in the company of their parents. But we actually never like ever hear about kids with parents in the Grisha second army, which is just weird. It seems like kind of a strange omission. And then secondly, besides that kind of oddity why do all these grisha need to be recruited like being the grisha that pop up randomly in bloodline i do think it's kind of a weird thing to villainize the darkling over he is providing sanctuary for grisha that are would otherwise be tortured Two, he by building an army like changing the perception of grisha within ravka and making them the protectors of the country i do think he's trying to do something noble and then thirdly like the draft is hardly like a unique evil to the Darkling. The draft exists in many forms in many countries and many times. Like, it's not uncommon for young men and women to be forced to join an army. Besides which, the draft seems to be continuing today beyond the Darkling's power in Ravka, right? Like, they're still trying to recruit Grisha into the second army, perhaps with even more urgency than before because they lost so many people.
1: The draft for Grisha has changed. It is voluntary. The draft for Odkazazia is not voluntary still.
0: I was also going to say, fourthly, to add to your list, Anjali, there's so many other crimes that he's committed. Why harp on this one that it's kind of questionable, right? Exactly. (laughs) Just like, if you want
2: to pick a bad thing that the Darkling did, there are like a hundred. I don't know why, you know, Tearing Grisha children away from their parents doesn't really strike me as the most unique to him or his worst evil.
1: And if it was, you would have thought we'd actually see some of it happening. Totally. The other thing that was repeated a few times and that caused, I I actually, the first time I read it, I left a note in my Kindle highlight, which was, Capital W, space, capital H, space, capital A, space, capital T, space. Just like, what? Which is, he wanted Ravka to love him. And we see Genya say this. We see Zoya says it or thinks it, as does Nikolai. And I was so shocked when I first read this in Rule of Wolves. Because that was not at all my impression of the Darkling from the original trilogy.
0: Does he ever say it himself?
1: He does not say it himself. Like, especially not in the original trilogy that that we see. And on the reread, I did see Alina actually says this in Ruin and Rising, where she's like, he just wanted Ravka to love him. But I wasn't sure why she thought that, (laughs) given that she just watched him like massacre a Ravkin town and then side with Fierda to fight a civil war against his Grisha in the little palace. I guess I I find this very surprising. Is there a level on which this is believable or makes sense to either of you?
0: The only thing that I really remembered him saying, that's why I was asking double checking that he never said that he wanted Ravka to love him, is that he did want them to be in awe of him. Like, in one of the monk perspective chapters, he says, there Yuri's transformation from humble monk to chosen savior would be completed. There Alexander would teach them awe. So it really makes it seem like he wants to be adored, maybe, and appreciated. But he never uses the word love as far as we remember.
1: It seems like a real change. I
0: I agree. Like, I
2: think the primary motivations that we learn for the darkling are different in in the original trilogy he seems to thirst for power and to a small extent he still wants a safe space for grisha and betting on ravka and helping Ravka out is, for him, helping Grisha out. And this is confirmed when we get his point of view in Demon in the Woods, we kind of learn what drives him. And it's this persecution that he faced as a child. And you can really see why everything else he does later in life is to provide a haven for Grisha. But yes, he never seems to be particularly patriotic, He seems to be very much rooting for for Grisha rights all along the way, but it's never tied to the fact that he loves Ravka by any sense. But we are told he loves Ravka an awful lot all of a sudden in Rule of Wolves.
0: So I'm going to take a different perspective on this. I don't think it's so far-fetched. And the reasons why I'm saying that are, for example, in The Demon in the Woods, we see how much he wants to have a friend. And obviously that friend ends up betraying him and trying to freeze slash drown him and take his bones for herself. (laughs) Great (laughs) choice, great choice. Friends, who hasn't had a friend like that though? A classic frenemy. What I was thinking is, even from The Demon in the Woods, we kind of see that he he wants a friendship. The only person he really has had up until that point is his mother by his side. and you know, like, Moms are great, don't get me wrong, but it's not the same as having a, a friend around your own age. Even in Rule of Wolves, in one of his perspective chapters, he says something like, his first soldiers were dead now, lovers, allies, countless kings and queens, only he continued on. And you see that he doesn't mention friends. Allies is not the same as friends. So it does make me wonder how much of his actions are driven by him wanting that friendship and love from someone other than his own mother.
1: I I completely agree that I think, I mean, I think we really saw his interest in Alina in the first trilogy driven by this desire for like another person to recognize and know him. And he wouldn't have said love. He doesn't say love no. in Rule of Wolves. He's, what is it, like, a feeling he knew the name for a 100 lifetimes ago or whatever. Right. But I think there's this hunger for this kind of individual connection, which in Rule of Wolves, and I guess at the end of Ruin and Rising, everyone is suddenly interpreting as this desire to be loved by a country, to, like, be beloved.
0: yeah. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of blurring the lines between like personal relationships and being loved by all of the inhabitants of your country. But the two people he seems to bear the most resentment towards are Mal and Nikolai. And you could say, sure, it's because they're the other suitors for Alina, if, we, if you think that he actually did have feelings for her. But I think the other thing those two have in common is how popular they are and that everyone around them likes them. And that's not the Darkling, right? He's never had that. He does have awe and adoration as the Darkling, as the general of the Second Army, but he doesn't have people who genuinely like him for him.
2: Yeah, and I I think the other thing that kind of makes you think, right, is that you mentioned at the top of the episode, he is a contemporary of saints. So he's seen people become saints. He's seen them become objects of adoration of Ravka. And he's never considered... Mm -hmm doing any of those saint-like things right he has different priorities and ambitions that he is following he's never been self-sacrificial or whatever it is that it takes to become a saint and i can see him having failed in that endeavor to i don't know he failed in a lot of ways right in in ruin and rising if he says okay plan a didn't work out But you know what I would like is I would like people to like me and to be remembered. And so I'm going to give this the same thing a shot. And wow, there's already a cult sprung up for me. It has a cool name. I'm all about that. So now I want Ravka to love me. I would buy that. However, I I think it's... What's jarring is that it is said about him, the only thing he's ever wanted was Ravka to love him. That's all he's wanted. And so that's just a little confusing (laughs) because if that's all he wanted, I think there were some avenues to achieve that prior to now.
0: (laughs) I would say one last thought on this is, again, an argument in favor of why it might be plausible that he does want Ravka's love, or even if he wouldn't use that word, is because he's lost his mother's love in a sense where Bagra has given up on him by this duology. Before, she still is kind of holding out her last hopes for his redemption, but it seems like from our Bagra episode that she's washed her hands of him, and now he's really alone and no one loves him in his mind. So might as well get everyone possible to love him to make up for that void of your mother no longer loving you. Like, how terrible a thing is that?
1: You know who loves him? Elizabeth.
0: Does she then, or does she love the idea of ruling and using him as like a vessel to do so? Do we think
2: he Oh, burn.
0: <laughs> Maybe no. he knew the word for it a hundred years ago, or a hundred hundred of years ago. I think
2: that as a psychological analysis would make perfect sense. And I would also buy that as a motivation for him suddenly wanting to become beloved by a populace.
0: Totally. And... Don't get me wrong, I'm not using my master's in psychology at all for this. This is all armchair psychology. But actually, can we talk a little bit more about what you just brought up? His relationship sure. with Elizabetha. Yeah. I found it surprising, to say the least. Not surprising in the fact that he would use someone, uh, another woman, in fact, as a means towards his ends. But the fact that they had this weird, outstanding sort of relationship and she got trapped in the fold when he made it because she was drawn there. And throughout all that time, she continued to want to resurrect him. It sounded like primarily to be free of the fold herself and back to her kind of full powers. But what was going on there? I did not understand it. I read it a little bit as him
1: hedging his bets. Like, in the same way, he's like, Oh, I bet I can get Alina to do this. And he's like, I bet I can get Elizabeth to do this.
0: And then later he says, Oh, I bet I could harness Zoya's power again. He thinks to himself, now Oh, yeah. That she's so powerful. Yeah. He thinks he can turn her. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, I like, he probably just has a bunch of little schemes going. He's like, They won't all work, but at least one of them will. I don't know I didn't understand exactly what was happening yeah
0: it felt weird and then we do see him think to himself later well at least Zoya killed her off so she took care of that for me
1: (laughs) (laughs) truly a doomed relationship Zoya's just right back where she began doing the darklings
0: dirty work (laughs) so another question I had was what is going on with the blight when it rips through the town that he's in and it spares him like what was that supposed to mean
1: when i read it the first time it certainly seemed like the blight recognized him in some way right like created this little island around him one of the things i thought was interesting is how much time in this book they spend talking about how for grisha like the darkling only their own power can kill them and to some extent it would seem like the blight is that thing and I am a little surprised it specifically didn't kill him. But on reread, I had wondered more if, if it was like recognition of him as the only person who could end the Blight and kind of being that person who has to stand between the
0: nothing and the world mm-hmm. and hold it closed somehow. Oh, like a, again, he, him being in this island surrounded by darkness in a sense.
1: Yeah, as a metaphor. Right. And. Yeah, and like, was this the world exerting its power in an attempt to save itself?
2: I had a much less nuanced interpretation, which was the blight was just like the fold, which also spared him. And he was initially afraid of it, but realized it could harm him. And similarly, the blight leaves him alone.
0: I'm also curious... Why do you think he wanted Nikolai's demon for himself? I didn't really understand that part. So during the obispaya what they're trying to do is exercise the demon from Nikolai so that and kill Nikolai in the process so that the Darkling can claim the demon back. Why? Huh. So they say that The demon is animated by a
1: piece of the Darkling's will. And so it's possible that alone might have given him back his powers if he'd been able to reclaim it, and that Mal's blood was a plan B Mm -hmm. or plan F. We don't know (laughs) how many more failures there were
0: here. (laughs) So while I'm at it, I'm just going to keep asking questions about the Darkling that I have. What is he trying to do exactly with Yuri's identity So he thinks to himself at some point about how he's just going to be Alexander, he's not going to use all these other names anymore, and then he's like, oh, there's actually too many grudges against me to come back as him. But then he later talks about wanting there to be this, like, one single immortal saint that all of Ravka loves, so I'm just, like, I don't really understand what his... end goal was with Yuri was did he want Yuri to become this like new avatar as a saint or did he actually want to come back as the original Darkling?
2: I think it's unclear but I also think perhaps he has done this many times before right he kills himself off and in this case he was actually literally killed off and he comes back and he rises to power again as a new Darkling so I think that's possibly what he's doing where he's trying to set the world up for his return and he will be supported by this cult that he's you know also helping set up and then he'll be the new darkling and come to power like he did before
1: yeah i guess i got the sense that he was using yuri's identity as essentially cover while he figures out exactly what the right move is and probably that he is trying to preserve as much optionality as possible in the way that we think he did with Elisabetta. But yeah, it definitely, he doesn't seem to have a crystal clear idea of what his plan is that is shared with us. Although maybe this is more of the Kaz Brecker scheming in the background sort of thing, and we're never allowed to see it.
2: I do think it, It is to the detriment of these chapters that we don't really understand why he's doing the things he's doing. Like even if he's scrambling, I would have found it more engaging if perhaps he had actually said that and you kind of get to see what the process of him spinning his wheels and then trying to figure out and feeling desperate is like. But instead, it's all just kind of like murky. You don't really understand.
1: It did seem like the series was trying to do a lot And there were a number of plot lines where I have major questions of what exactly was the goal here.
2: Maybe we can talk a little bit about the Yuri Monk point of view chapters and like whether, like how they compared to seeing his point of view in Demon in the Woods and whether we think they added to the series or not. And perhaps that's a leading question. (laughs) Because I'll be honest, like I, it's so interesting because I think Lee Bardugo can wield point of view chapters with such skill. I think we've talked a lot about how people that would otherwise be villains very easily, like Kaz, having the benefit of their point of view chapters really helps humanize them, really helps them be fan favorites, like helps the audience connect to them and understand them. And I think the point of view chapters in Demon in the Woods help make the darkling a really interesting character you see his persecution and that connects to his actions in the the trilogy which might seem really evil or greedy i think the point of view for yuri it felt really flat to me he just seemed really tired and worn out and it just seemed so ordinary I know he, I don't know, he's not the same Darkling that he was before the events of ruin rising and obviously he literally died, but he just seems so beaten down and like kind of uninteresting for the first time. I think about sometimes the fact that most of the characters in these books are called by their Russian diminutives, like Genya, for example, is a diminutive, Alexander is a full name, and we never see him called by the diminutive of Alexander, which is Sasha. I think of these chapters as Sasha chapters. The Darkling made plebeian and ordinary and I I don't know. That's just my take.
0: Oh, I totally agree. As a major Darkling fan from the original trilogy, I was really excited when he came back. But then these perspective chapters removed and ruined all the mystique and the intrigue of the original Darkling character for me. So it was painful to read Yeah, I think we really see the,
1: is he a good leader? (laughs) Like, is he good at what he does? And I think we really see his incompetence on display pretty extensively. The stuff that he does do well is stuff that should be like trivial for him to do well. (laughs) Give a speech. Yeah, like give a speech to a bunch of people who will worship you the minute you spill darkness. Right. Like, that's very easy. Or show up to a battle and then be like, I can't do anything. Okay, let me reinforce this demon. It, it does look a little bit not as competent as the villain. I, I think I enjoyed him as a competent villain more.
0: I've also come to question his foresight. Like in the original trilogy, he tells Alina something about, and I'm looking to you, JJ, if you have the quote off top ahead, about how the age of Grisha is coming to an end. Close enough okay cool in the end of rule of wolves during that big battle of all the forces coming together he also is his plan was okay here's the quote because i think it's so like ridiculous he'd intended to conjure a great blot of shadow block out the sun fill them with awe there would be no sign he hadn't anticipated a weapon like this one and it's just like his plan is so (laughs) basic like zero, you know, like (laughs) nothing in there for me to admire, and then it also gets immediately quashed when he sees the Fyrdan weapons. But I also just felt like it was him again starting to believe that is gonna win and Ravka's being beaten. And it's also, to be fair, it's his first time seeing Pyram in action, but he's starting to really realize that Grisha are about to be completely subjugated by Fierda and kind of seems to give up. And he's actually completely wrong. In fact, maybe it's the Apparat actually who's right, that it's like a new age of saints beginning with Zoya. And I just thought it was so interesting how he completely missed all these signs and really was only looking at what new weapons were kind of being developed and Kerem instead of seeing all these signs that Actually, the age of Grisha is not coming to an end. In fact, you're about to have a Grisha dragon queen on the throne.
2: Yeah. How good of a leader is he actually?
0: <laughs> Apparently not. But maybe
1: as fitting punishment or whatever, he ends up tortured for all eternity inside <laughs> of a tree. So let's talk about this ending, beginning with why. Why? <laughs>
0: I'm not sure what else you do with an immortal being. You kind of have to give them an immortal infinite quest too, I guess. And I think it would have been felt silly and anticlimactic if they just like kill him again, and then it's is he gonna come back again later when some other saint finds his body? So I think they had to put him in a spot where it was very clear where he is at all times, and there's <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing because I think it's just like such a weird ending for him but I kind of understand the need to keep him in a very known clear spot so there aren't weird side stories of what's going on with the Darkling.
2: Yeah and I think if as we kind of have to accept that maybe he wants to be loved uh, by Ravka uh, whether that is an old motivation or a brand new one. This is a good way to maybe make up for some of the terrible things that he's done to Ravka and its citizens. Uh, It's a sacrifice he's making. And if he was going to roll with his Cult of the Starless Saint, he's got to make that sacrifice that actually makes him a saint. So here it is.
0: So that kind of rolls into one of the other big questions I have, which is, like, why did she bring him back in this duology? I I mean...
1: I would certainly have preferred he not come back. But
0: one of the things that struck me on this
1: reread right before he went into the tree was Jenya talks to him for the first time and says, I can forgive you for the scars you gave me and the woman I am can forgive you for this, but the girl I was can't forgive you for what you did to me, Um, paraphrasing. And I it felt to me like he was serving the purpose of being there so that the characters could say these things and maybe get some closure. But it wasn't clear to me that he needed to be there for it, that these were conversations that they couldn't have had, that they wouldn't have had more closure if he had stayed dead. And I think he's a very popular character, two-thirds of us on this podcast really enjoyed the dark (laughs) called out and (laughs) I think we're like setting him up for a redemption that this is like atonement redemption kind of whether or not he wants it you know he says he's not sorry but he's really getting forced into this sort of redemption I don't really think it's atonement because he's not
0: actually atoning for anything because he doesn't really care so a lot of what happens with him in this duology actually reminds me of that interview that you told us about where Lee Bardugo was talking about I think how surprised she was that people liked the Lane and how some of the fans were like just too rabid and the Starless Saint cult is actually kind of based off of Darkling stand. So it felt like a lot of these books was her way of reminding us like, hey, this dude is really evil. Here, let let me relist out all the bad things that he's done, and remind you that he's not just this like dashing romantic figure. But
2: maybe that's why she made him so boring in this
0: book. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. She definitely the quash all
2: that enthusiasm for that polished, mysterious, totally. suave darkling character, and like, get ready to hear his internal monologue. It's terrible.
0: That's hilarious, probably. I wouldn't be surprised. So I guess,
1: what does this mean for a subsequent book? Specifically about the Darkling, what do we think the future might hold for the Darkling? Are they going to find St. Felix's heart? Is Alina really going to be involved again?
2: I'd like to think that this is it for the Darkling. Like, I think that whether we liked how it was done or not, a lot of bows were tied off and he doesn't need to appear. That's not to say that I don't want more involvement in the Darkling. I've mentioned before, I would love a prequel to these books. I want to know more about Bagra's backstory. I want to know more about the Darkling's half-siblings. I want to know about his aunt. Tell me more of that.
0: I think the only thing for me is thinking about how Zoya reacted to him being trapped in eternal torture also made me question like is this really how I want things to end for him and I guess I kind of want him to be released and I have a feeling if he comes if this whole like heist takes place with the six of crows coming back and finding Felix's heart that it's going to have the Darkling be released, but as a regular mortal non Grisha, and have him, like, that's kind of his punishment, since that was, to him, the worst possible thing. When he saw that happen to Alina, that when she lost her powers, his reaction to that was, again, it was, like, all about him and himself instead of about her and her grief. That would be the biggest punishment for him. I,
1: I think Zoya will kill him. And the... Only reason I think that Kat, I actually like your ending <laughs> idea much better. But is there's this line, it really struck me on the first read-through, even when he says something to Zoya like, You're thinking of killing me, aren't you? And the line is, I'm not going to kill you. Zoya Ooh. lied. But of course, she she doesn't kill him here. And this is like, that is an author explicitly like telling us this is a lie. And by the end of this book, it's not a lie. So I could see if this were Lee Bardugo's first novel, I might be like, that's a-
2: Rookie mistake.
1: Yeah, a rookie mistake. But for a writer as experienced as she is, I have to believe that is telling us something about the future for the Darkling.
0: So Zoe talks about killing the Darkling a lot, actually. Yeah. Especially throughout yeah all, all of her perspective and Nikolai's perspective chapters in <laughs> Rule of Wolves. <laughs> I love it. I actually... Thought what was happening is like it was one of those things where Lee Bardugo was trying to be like, oh, this is what Zoya wants. She really wants to kill the Darkling. In a sense, it's almost for her to kill her sense of shame that she feels. But I thought the this ending was supposed to make her confront her own desires and realize that they weren't for the best. That even though she really had wanted to kill the Darkling, it ended up being good that she didn't because otherwise it would have been her sitting in that tree for eternity. Right, like she was the only other potential candidate for that. So I actually took it very differently and thought that she'd come to terms with the fact that she was not going to kill the Darkling, that she no longer wanted to kill the Darkling, and by the end she actually had empathy for him. Like she was dreaming that she was becoming him and she was dreaming of his pain and torment. So I don't know, I don't think she's gonna kill him. Or if she does, it'll be like a assisted euthanasia because he wants to die or something.
1: I could totally see that. Yeah. I could totally I think that
0: could combine those two things. Well, I just, yeah, it's so many times she's thinking about killing him. She says it to him. She says it to Nikolai. Like, she brings it up multiple times as the one way that she can think of fixing the blight is like, take him to the fold and kill the Darkling.
1: Yeah. She's like, we should kill the Darkling. And they're like, that's your solution for everything. Right. right. And she's like, we won't know if it works until we try.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting how much she wants to kill him. Like, she really, truly hates him. It really makes you realize how much she not only hates him, But how much she hates that he acts as this reflection for for herself of what she sees and fears in her own future.
2: I mean, I think that makes sense for Zoya. We've talked about before, you know, the shame that she feels. I think it is also emphasized so much because, or at least this is my interpretation, it is the author signaling you know this is how zoya is not going to become the darkling because she's internalized this fear of what his power can do and so this is her like having these checks on her power that are internal to her and so we kind of have more hope for her the the grisha queen who will be better than the darkling
0: yeah and who's outgrown her need to kill him as a punishment like because it's for her personally the way she wants to kill him right it's not for the good of the country necessarily each time it's because of how she feels and how he makes her feel and by the end that she's kind of outgrown that i think is supposed to show her character journey and growth if you will very good points
1: yeah so lightning round we sort of discussed this but decision to bring the darkling
0: back Thoughts. I was so excited at the end of King of Scars when he popped up again. I was like, what? And I'm pretty sure I immediately messaged JJ because she was the one who reminded me that King of Scars had just come out or was about to be released. And I was super excited. I was like, what's gonna happen? And then (laughs) rule of looks like we've talked about, I think Lee Bardugo deliberately tried to character assassinate him in a new brutal (laughs) way throughout this, and it worked for me. I was so like over him by the end. Like, yes, you you go sit in that tree
2: i contrary to popular belief i do not hate the character of the darkling i may not root for him and alina i may kind of see him as super evil but i think he's an interesting character i think he makes the whole series super interesting so i'm actually pro bringing him back the concept itself i am fine with the execution of how he was brought back what he did his actual thoughts i i am not on board with i did not appreciate making him so boring yeah
1: i think cat i had the opposite reaction when he came back in king of scars i was like oh no <laughs> oh no <laughs> i don't think this is going anywhere good Yeah, I was a fan of leaving the characters who had kind of completed their arcs in the original trilogy alone. I was definitely rooting for that. Special guest this week for Kiss, Mary, Kill. Anjali is going to kick us off.
2: All right. In my guest spot, I thought I would torture you the same way that Kat regularly tortures me.
1: (laughs) And that the Darkling is currently being tortured for all eternity.
2: You will have to pick between... Yuri, the Apparat, and a tree. Oh.
0: <laughs> These choices. <laughs> this is abysmal. This is a taste of your own oh, medicine. Oh, God.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. So I'm definitely <laughs> killing the Apparat <laughs> because literal creepiest, worst character anywhere in in this whole series just so disgusting i don't know that i've enjoyed any scene he's been in particularly so we'll kill him i have more than (laughs) once been accused of being a tree hugger so i think kissing the tree is a reasonable segue there which then of course leaves marrying yuri interesting choices which is not really (laughs) yeah what i would go for but it's either that or kissing Yuri and marrying a tree. So <laughs> I, I guess I'm going to marry Yuri and then just kind of let him go on a pilgrimage.
2: <laughs> okay,
0: I am going to kill the tree.
2: Oh my god, Kat. Because
0: <laughs> this is a tree <laughs> of endless torture. <laughs> like this tree... All it does is torture you for eternity. Like, even for one night, I'm not down with that. So I'm not (laughs) kissing the tree. I think I will also have to marry Yuri. I'm not sure if he'll have me because I don't know if these monks are celibate or what their deal is. But I'll at least attempt to marry him because same as JJ, I feel like he's the one I could most easily kind of like off if needed to. And I think that means that I'm going to have to kiss the Apparat.
1: No. I know. No. It's and for His fun. gums are described as, like, they,
0: they have this whole thing about his gums being all black. I remember around. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's so disturbing. But I would say, like I said before in the biography, episode, I think he is a character that just had so much potential. Maybe that will carry over to our sure. kiss. Okay. Sure, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Cat is inspiring me.
2: I think I will also kiss the apparat and he's gross, but while we're making out, maybe I will encourage him to have some better plots and achieve his
0: (laughs) Oh, I thought you were gonna say (laughs) hygiene.
2: Okay. I will give him a dental hygiene kit beforehand. Um, and then afterwards, I will stoke his ambitions and help him achieve his true potential in this series. I will kill Yuri by placing him in the tree, and then I will marry the tree and Ooh. have a peaceful life with it. it. Cannot torture me. How about that?
0: I think that's actually the right answer. I thought so. That was a lot. But thanks so much for joining us this week again. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe.
2: Yeah. And if you have any feedback for us or any ideas for future episodes, please drop us a line at crowclubpod at gmail.com.